0: Welcome to The History of the Christian Church, Season 1, with Lance Rolston. This is Episode 124, Decline. Following the Great Awakening, which produced a deep-seated sense of faith in so many Americans prior to the Revolutionary War, as the new nation organized itself around its new national identity, it realized that something unique was taking place a genuine religious pluralism had taken root. It was very different from the centuries of conflict that marked the Europe that their ancestors had come from. There are several reasons for the religious pluralism of the United States. But when we speak of pluralism at that point in history, let's make sure that what we mean is a lack of the establishment of a specific Christian denomination as a national or a federal church. 18th century pluralism didn't extend to other major religions. There were no Buddhist or Hindu temples, no Islamic mosques or Shinto shrines. Americans were Christians, if not of the committed stripe, at least nominally. The first reason for the religious pluralism of the United States was immigration after 1690. It brought a mixture of people with various faiths so that no group was dominant. The Quakers of Pennsylvania opposed a formal church structure, which prevented the rise of a state church there. Now, please note this. While the First Amendment prohibited the federal government from establishing a national church, there was no ban on the states establishing a state church. Several states, in fact, had state churches. But the Quaker dominance of Pennsylvania resisted an established church. Their presence in New Jersey contributed to the religious mixture in that colony and Pennsylvania's control over Delaware during most of the colonial period meant that freedom of religion was there as well. French Huguenots took refuge in several colonies, and having suffered brutal persecution back home, well, they had no desire to persecute others. A second wave of immigrants in 1700 consisted mostly of some 200,000 Germans. While most were either Lutheran or Reformed, several smaller sects were also present. Most shared the pietistic emphasis on a deeply felt personal faith. They had no desire to dominate others' religious persuasion. These Germans settled in Pennsylvania and northern New York. Last came a wave of about a quarter million Scots-Irish from northern Ireland, nearly all Presbyterians. They'd been persecuted by the Anglican Church of Ireland, They spread throughout the middle and southern colonies, and by 1760, the population of the colonies was about two and a half million, a third of them born in a foreign land. A second influence favoring religious pluralism was that many of the colonies were proprietary, meaning they were business ventures. For the sake of business, religious feuds needed to be tamped down lest they prove a distraction to the colony's profitability even where a specific church or denomination was favored, large numbers of people from other faiths meant the requirement to get along for the greater good. And third, the revivals that we looked at in the last episode proved a leveling influence. They crossed denominational lines as if there was no distinction whatever. Revival preachers and promoters universally stressed the equality of all in the sight of God. Fourth, the Western frontier was another leveler, Pioneers were self-reliant individualists, or they didn't survive. In case you haven't noticed, rugged individualism and religious institutionalism don't mix. Frontiersmen were suspicious of and opposed attempts by them city folk back east asserting their will over the frontier in any form, including dictating what church would be built where and led by who. Fifth, Following the revivals of the 18th century, spiritual apathy began to grow once more. The church that had been filled during the Great Awakening began to empty, and without new ministers in training, it meant that more churches were left without gifted leaders. Now, let me be clear. While the frontier resisted Eastern denominations reaching into their realm, they still wanted their own churches. But the rapid evolution of the Western frontier meant that churches weren't built or manned quickly enough. The frontier became a largely unchurched region. In proportion of the population, probably more than anywhere else in Christendom during the first third of the 18th century, the western frontier of the British colonies was the least churched. Sixth, the philosophy of natural rights percolating for a couple of centuries coalesced during the Enlightenment it now began to influence many. One of those natural rights that people came to accept was the privilege of deciding what religion they would follow. John Locke's Letters of Toleration argued for the separation of church and state and a voluntary religious affiliation for any and all. Most leaders of the generation saw that the American revolutionary, such as Thomas Jefferson, were enamored with this philosophy And were active in bringing down the church establishment in virginia soon after the new nation won its independence when the revolution began the anglican church suffered greatly because many of its ministers had remained loyalists supporting england when the war was over there were few anglican ministers left in the country and many churches had been destroyed in all the disestablishment of religion seemed a foregone conclusion in the united states With the founding of the new nation, one after another, state churches toppled. The last to go was the Congregationalism in New Hampshire, Connecticut, and Massachusetts in the first half of the 19th century. I realize that the narrative that I've just shared appears to challenge the picture that some modern apologists paint for the role of Christianity in the early American Republic. A deeper look makes it clear there's really no challenge at all. To say that the United States saw a disestablishment of churches doesn't mean that Americans were irreligious. On the contrary, remember what we saw in the last episode. The Great Awakening had such a huge impact on the colonies that, for a time, to be an American meant to be a Christian, and not just as a default label derived by the process of elimination. You know, that attitude that some have that says, well, I'm not a Hindu or a Buddhist or a Muslim, so I must be a Christian. No, coming out of the Great Awakening, the American identity was one that was thoroughly and sincerely Christian of the pietistic stripe, where having a personal testimony of the experience of being born again was paramount. So, if there was so much religious diversity and agitation against an established church during the 18th century, what were the attitudes of the different denominations toward the revolution? Well, as I noted, the Anglicans of the Church of England were divided but dominated by a Loyalist majority. In the north, Anglicans leaned heavily towards the Loyalist cause. In the south, many of the great planters, men like George Washington, favored the revolutionary cause. Congregationalists gave enthusiastic support to the revolution, their ministers preached fervent sermons favoring the patriot cause. Presbyterians leaned that way as well, in a continuation of the old conflict back home between themselves and Anglicans. Presbyterian John Witherspoon was a signer of the Articles of Confederation, the only clergyman to sign the Declaration of Independence. Lutherans also supported the revolution under the leadership of the Muhlenbergs. And though divided, Roman Catholics were generally patriots. Baptists supported the revolution because they felt that the cause of separation of church and state was at stake. They believed that a British victory would bring a round of new political control and a tightening on the religious scene. Methodists were suspect, because at the beginning of the war, Wesley had urged neutrality. Then colonial preachers came out in support of the revolution. Although Quakers, Mennonites, and Moravians were pacifists, most of them were in sympathy with the revolution, and, well, some of them ended up joining the army. The revolution dissolved the ties between many religious groups in America and their spiritual relatives back home in Europe. This meant the need for new organizations in America. Though the Anglican Church had been handed a serious setback, it didn't completely evacuate the new nation. William White and Samuel Seabury attempted to rebuild the Anglican Church after the war under the new label of the Protestant Episcopal Church. Loosed from English Methodism in 1784, Methodists organized as the Methodist Episcopal Church under the leadership of Francis Asbury. That same year, American Roman Catholics ended their affiliation with the British Bishop. In 1789, John Carroll became the first Roman Catholic Bishop, with Baltimore as his see. The Baptists formed a general committee in 1784, and the Presbyterians in Philadelphia drew up a constitution for their church at the same time as the national constitution was being formed in 1787. The Revolutionary War proved to be hard on religious life in America, because most local churches supported the revolution When the British took an area, they often poured out their wrath on houses of worship. Churches were destroyed when they were used as barracks, hospitals, and sometimes as storehouses of munitions. Pastors and congregations were absorbed in the cause of the revolution rather than in building up the churches. French deism and its philosophical cousin atheism became fashionable among certain elements of American society because of the new alliance with France. Rationalism took control of colleges and other intellectual centers. In some schools, there was hardly a student who admitted to being a Christian. Conditions were so bad during the years when the Constitution was being forged that politicians and ministers alike virtually gave up hope for the role of religion in American society. Bishop Samuel Provost of the Episcopal Diocese of New York saw the situation as so hopeless he ceased to function. A committee of Congress reported on the desperate state of lawlessness on the frontier. Of a population of just 5 million, the United States had 300,000 alcoholics, bearing 15,000 of them a year. In 1796, George Washington agreed with a friend that national affairs were leading to a crisis that he was unable to see the outcome of. The closing years of the 18th century were dark, but let's remember. It's always darkest just before the dawn. Thanks for joining us at Communio Sanctorum. We really appreciate your listening and subscribing. Listeners are invited to like the Communio Sanctorum Facebook page and to write a review in the iTunes store. For both Facebook and iTunes, search for History of the Christian Church. Looking forward to joining you next time.